As you can tell, we're starting a new sermon series. I'm excited about it. It's on page 45 of the Bibles under your chair. If you don't have a Bible, uh, consider that our gift to you. If you do have a Bible, please open up. I'd love for you to see that the time that we're going to spend in this book is not based on my words. It's based on God's Word, and we need to hear from Him more than me. So let's ask Him to be speaking in this time. I'm going to pray for us, for our time in the Word together and ask that His Word would reign supreme in our hearts. So please join me in prayer as you turn to Exodus chapter 1, which is on page 45 of the Bible under your seat. Father, we thank You that this wonderful story that we have the opportunity to unpack and walk through together is actually true. It actually does point to You, the sovereign God, working Your sovereign purposes in all time, in all ways, and against all circumstances and odds. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to hear from you, to speak with you in prayer, to worship your name with your people. And we ask that you would meet us, that you would direct our hearts, our our minds, our thoughts to the things of your worth, of your purposes, your plans. Regardless of whatever joys or struggles we've brought into this room, would you still our hearts and still our thoughts? That we'd put to rest the to-do list, that we'd put to rest the worries, that we'd put to rest anything that would get in the way of hearing from you. And so, Lord, we ask that your word would be our rule, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that your glory, our concern, your Son, our increasing joy, and that your Spirit would lead and guard and guide me to only and always say what would make most of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. All right, think back with me over the last week. How many things did you forget this week? How many things? And if you're not sure, look to the person next to you. They'll probably quickly remind you how many... Yeah, the elbow nudges aren't going to help now. <laughs> Bad news. All of us are... It's, it's, it's easy to forget. And forgetting little things... I forgot the grocery list like twice this week. You forget the little things, no big deal. But the book of Exodus helps you and I remember something we should never forget. See, the pattern of God's people is quickly, in all of Scripture, is quickly after He often speaks to them and reveals Himself to them, there's something called gospel amnesia that tends to set in. We we kind of forget how big, how holy, how mighty, how powerful God really is. And we forget what we've been made to be like and do as His people through faith in Christ Jesus. And so as we open the book of Exodus, this wonderful story that recounts historical events of God working 3,500 years ago, we also find timeless relevance for the Carterville-ite or Carterville-iad, whatever the local uh, colloquial is, for us in 2019 in Carterville. Primarily that God's word reminds us who he is, who we are, and it points us to his son, whom you and I need. See, as we unpack Exodus, we're going to hear not only reminders of God's work, but previews of Christ Jesus. Think with me about some of the key people and moments in this book. Moses, a prophet and mediator, rejected in his own hometown, but sent to save his people. Think about the great Red Sea crossing. 
God miraculously parting the seas of death in order to bring his people from one dangerous shore to the safety of new life kind of sounds like Jesus on the cross parting the seas of God's wrath so that through faith in him we can walk on dry ground into eternal life. Think about the tabernacle. God's so desiring to dwell amidst his people that he comes down and sets up residence with them. Then in John chapter 1, what does Jesus do? He tabernacles amongst us. He sets up presence with his people. The book of Exodus is chock full of previews to the Jesus that you and I long for. And so I invite you to listen as we unpack this story over the next couple months with some breaks in between. I invite you to listen with God-centered ears. That you would remember who he is, how great he is, and what he's calling us to be like and do through faith in Christ Jesus. Remembering that God is the God who saves. Hence the screen behind me is the big idea that we're going to come through, come to throughout all of Exodus And beginning in chapter 1, we see that the God who saves is the God who keeps his promises. The God who keeps his promises even amidst the times of seeming delay in our lives when we're prompted to ask, God, have you forgotten? He's the God who keeps his promises even amidst difficulty when we want to ask, God, are you able to help me? And he's the God who keeps his promises even against death itself. So let's turn to verse 1 to 7 as we begin to unpack and look to the God who keeps his promises first amidst the seeming delays or pauses in our lives. Verse 1 to 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So we're opening a book that continues where Genesis left off. God's people now sojourning into a new land, out of the land that they were called out of. Each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. But then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. You guys ever heard a promise that seemed too good to be true? Or maybe you made a promise that was too good to be true? For example, honey, I promise to take the trash out every single week. If you let me go hunting or fishing tomorrow. Or I told my wife, hey, Jen, if I change every diaper tomorrow, will you let me have like an hour to nap? (laughs) Lo and behold, (laughs) I didn't change every diaper and she gave me some time to rest. Sometimes we are prompted to make or sometimes hear promises that seem too good to be true. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 to 7 is the beginning of God keeping a promise that almost seemed too good to be true. And this list of names that we can hardly pronounce is the exact evidence of this. See, these lists of names, it says in in, uh, verse 1, are the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. These are Abram's great-grandchildren. Remember, back in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a pagan, desert-dwelling nomad... Abram and speaks to him 
and makes these crazy promises. Listen to the promises that God makes to Abram in chapter 12. Almost sounds too good to be true. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A pagan dwelling, a pagan desert dwelling nomad who did nothing to earn God's favor is desired by God and God speaks to him and promises to make him great into a great nation and to make him a blessing to others. And he promises to do so even amidst difficulty. His promise to Abram goes forward in Genesis 15. Listen to the promise get even more outlandish. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and their servant, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Okay, that's not a good promise. <laughs> no one wants to hear that promise. But there's hope along the way. Verse 14. God says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Danger and difficulty is foretold, and yet in Exodus, a rescue is previewed as well. God is promising to deliver even when it seems like there's delay and difficulty and death, and he gives this promise to, it says, verse 5, the descendants of Jacob, all 70 of them, who were now in Egypt, where Joseph already was. All right, let's connect the dots. We're beginning Exodus, continuation from Genesis. How did they get to Egypt? How did Joseph get here? It wasn't an all-expenses-paid vacation where his brothers kindly sent him. Joseph got here because his brothers tried to kill him. And instead of killing him, they said, okay, we'll lighten up on the poor guy. We'll just sell him into slavery to the foreign alien nation who will probably oppress him and put him under their harsh labor. And yet, what those people intended for evil, God used for good. God takes this alien foreigner, puts him in a new land, raises him up to vice president, second in charge over all Pharaoh's, all Pharaoh's resources, and Joseph wisely stewards all of their resources so that Egypt is fed during a famine. And Pharaoh says, I kind of like you, Joseph. I think I trust you now that you've taken care of my people, why don't you bring your family, your 70 descendants, into this neck of the woods and let them set up shop? And so that's what they do. They're allowed to come into Egypt, this new foreign land. But then verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. The story gets a little less hopeful. Then Joseph died. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And all his brothers and all that generation... Okay, so it's been 400 years. This hasn't been like an hour or a week since that promise to Abram that we just read. 400 years since Genesis chapter 12. And here the people of God are in a distant land. Their lineage, ancestor, patriarch, Joseph, seems to have, you know, well, he has died. And now what are they going to do? If you were part of God's people, what would you be thinking or feeling at this moment? You, you would know the promise to Abram. 
you would have that in your head and, and saying, God, I know what you said. You are going to make us a great people, a great nation. Use us to bless others. Where are you? Have you forgotten us? Are you delaying? Are you abandoning us? You guys ever felt like that in the midst of your life? You ever felt like, God, I know you've called me to something. I know I'm following you in faith. And yet, where are you? I thought by now you would have delivered on your promises, but I seem to be walking in this ongoing season of delay. God, I thought by now my marriage would be healed. That sickness would be relieved. My boss would relent. I thought by now I would see the fruit of what you intended to bring about in this season. The question for God's people then and the question for us now is, will you depend on God even amidst delay? When it doesn't seem like your time zone and heavenly standard time zone are in sync, are you going to depend on the God who keeps his promises? And verse 7 gives you reason to hope in the God who keeps his promises. Listen to verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Is that what you expected to be there? I wouldn't. If I were writing the story, reading it, I would imagine the people of Israel dwindled and died off. That's what would seem circumstantially accurate. But God is at work. He's moving even if he's not explaining. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled with them. Guys, don't forget the big picture. Seventy no-names venture into the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And by Exodus chapter 12, there are two million of them. How in the world do you explain that? except for a God who powerfully works to keep his promises to Abram and make a great people into a great nation to bless others. This is the God who is active, not absent. The God who is moving, even if not always explaining in the ways we want. And he turns their sojourning into strengthening. So will you depend on the God who keeps his promises even in the seasons of seeming delay, even when you feel like, God, have you forgotten? Have you abandoned me? How much longer am I going to have to wait until I see the fruit of your promises? Will you depend on the God who keeps his promises as he did to Israel? And will you depend on the God who keeps his promises amidst great difficulty? Turn with me to verse 8 to 14. You'll notice we're moving a little bit faster through the narrative. Um, 8 to 14 God keeps his promises even amidst your real day-to-day difficulty. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, the Egyptians, Behold, the people of Israel, they're too many and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. How silly is that? Pharaoh's worried about 70 foreigners. He's the most powerful man, the most powerful nation of the world at that time, and yet you hear deep fear in his words. Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Summer vacations are officially winding down. And I don't know about you, I hope this was the case, but uh, not all of our vacations always go according to plan, do they? Some of us have vacations where, no, just heads are shaking. When I was growing up, my parents would take three young male children under the age of 10 every summer to Texas in a car, and we lived in Maryland at the time. Can you imagine what it's like driving three boys who can't sit still for 30 minutes in a car for about, I don't know, 2,000 miles over three days every single summer? My parents are legitimately crazy. Legitimately crazy. By the time we hit Texarkana, which was day two of our, like, four, three, four-day sojourning, they, I didn't think we were, all five of us were going to make it to San Antonio. I knew one of us was getting kicked out. Our vacations, our trips, they often go unaccording, unaccording to plan. When the Israelites left their nation, their former land, and they entered Egypt, you know what they were probably thinking? This is it. God is going to make, God's going to wipe out Egypt. He's going to make us the new superpower, the new big kids on the global block, politically speaking. This is it. We're going to get in that car and we're, he's going to bring us there. But <laughs> things didn't go according to plan. Things were hard and they began to be hard because there is a new sheriff in town, a new pharaoh. Look at verse 8. Here's where things start to go bad. There arose a new king over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. Okay, that's highly unlikely that the new pharaoh didn't actually know who Joseph was. This would be like the president, the new president, not knowing who the former vice president was. Trump knows who Biden is. He just don't care. And so when we hear of this new pharaoh, not knowing who Joseph was, he knows who Joseph and his descendants were, but he don't care. Joseph, Israelites, who that? And so what he's saying is, I don't care about state-sponsored protection for these people anymore. He implements state-sponsored oppression. He is so afraid of 70 no-names from a foreign nation that he begins to implement politics of propaganda and immigrant oppression. And it's as ugly in this passage as it is today when the same things happen. Listen to how hard and difficult life was made to be for God's people. Verse 9, And he said to his people, Pharaoh speaking to the nation of Egypt, Behold, the people of Israel, all 70 of them, in parenthesis, not in, in the text, but my thoughts, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. These words are pure evil from a purely evil heart. Pharaoh deals shrewdly. You almost hear echoes of the serpent in the garden, cunning, conniving, trying to work all of his evil intent against God's people and their good. And they're all driven by fear. You notice what he says. These people are too many. They're too mighty for us. What if they join with our enemies? They're going to overtake us. 
And so Pharaoh, in his fear, begins to sin against others, begins to harm and inflict others because he's afraid of self-preservation being lost. Listen to how bad it gets. Verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them. The same word that was used in Genesis 15, affliction, with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. They ruthlessly made the people work as slaves, made their lives bitter in brick and mortar, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made their work, made them work as slaves. This is difficulty with a capital D. This trip into Egypt has gone about as bad as you could imagine. Ruthless, slavery, affliction. Pharaoh's so afraid of his own self-preservation that he has these people build store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Essentially, these are just like military bases up in the northeast corner of Egypt where invasion was likely. Pharaoh's saying, I'm so afraid of you and outside foreigners coming in that I want you to build my fortresses for me. This fearful Pharaoh is sinning against God and others because he's afraid for his own well-being. You and I wouldn't do this, would we? We wouldn't, in the midst of great fear in our lives, turn away from dependence on and trust in the God who always provides and instead potentially get angry at others, sin against God and say, I don't want to depend on you, I want to go my way. I don't think I can have enough patience with my spouse, with my in-laws, my kids, my boss. And so fear of not getting your way turns into sin against God's way. Maybe you're afraid of not having the approval, the affirmation of your, your colleagues, your supervisor at work. And so you begin to compromise character for their applause. Maybe you're afraid of the realization that finances are dwindling. And you don't know how to provide, and so you begin to hoard up instead of generously give. Maybe you're afraid that that retirement that you've always envisioned down at the beach or every day with the grandkids is being threatened by some future job difficulty. And so what, you, what you're tempted to do is take a second job, overbook the calendar, avoid responsibilities in the home and the church in order to secure maximum comfort later. How in your fear might you be tempted to depend on self and deny God and his ways instead of depend on the God who keeps his promises? See, this passage does indeed confront the sinful Pharaoh in us, but it also has good news for the suffering Israelite in us as well. See, you might hear this passage and you're thinking, well, I, I, I so agree and affirm that affliction and burden, that's part of my life. Like if, if Jameson were to ask me, how are you doing today? I couldn't honestly look him in the face and not say afflicted and burdened. Struggling with the realities of day-to-day life in this world. It might not be Egypt. It's not Egypt for you. But it might be the difficult health crisis, that chronic pain that you go to doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment and you don't get the relief that you want. Maybe it's the difficult marriage where it seems like no matter what you say to each other, it just jumps into an argument within two sentences. Maybe it's the kids who won't sleep. Maybe it's the in-laws who have really high expectations and differing from you. Maybe it's the boss who won't relent. 
What is the difficult moment or difficult situation that you're struggling with? And where do you run for help amidst that? See, God wants us to see that we can trust in Him who keeps His promises amidst difficulty, and He gives us verse 12 to help us do so. Verse 12 comes in between the middle of all this. Listen to verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. That's the good news. That's the hope for God's people. God is active, not absent. These 70 no-names, they should have died off. They should have been killed by the greatest power of their day, Pharaoh, the evil king. But the sovereign eternal king says no. The sovereign eternal king says, I will multiply my people. I will strengthen them amidst sojourning and slavery. And what Pharaoh has meant for evil, I will use for good. See, there is great hope for the sinner, for the Pharaoh-like garbage that comes out of your heart and my heart. And there is great hope for the sufferer amidst us. And the hope that we find is not in Pharaoh, it's not in ourselves, it's in Jesus. It's in the Jesus who Exodus 1 previews and points forward to. See, Jesus is the only one who suffered every single difficulty that you and I should suffer for our sin, but he suffered it for us so we wouldn't have to for eternity. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Guys, he lived perfectly. He never sinned. And then he died sacrificially and rose victoriously. He suffered unjustly, the only one who ever suffered unjustly, so that in all of our difficulty, in all of our sin, we can know that we are forgiven if we trust in him, and we know that we have a faithful high priest that sympathizes with us. See, Hebrews 4 tells us that because Jesus died for us and now lives in us, we have a high priest who sympathizes with us in our suffering so we can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. So whether this passage reveals the sinful Pharaoh garbage in your heart like it does in mine, whether it prompts you to depend on God in the midst of great difficulty like it does in my life as well, Run to the Jesus who suffered every difficulty so you wouldn't have to. The God who keeps his promises amidst every difficulty you will ever face in this life. And finally, this is the God who keeps his promises even in the face of death. Turn with me to verse 15 to 22 as we conclude our time together. God keeps his promises amidst delay, difficulty, and finally death. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives one of whom was named Shipra and Pua, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, you shall live. This is bad news getting worse <laughs> for God's people. Pharaoh is so scared that he takes his oppression and he turns it into genocide. And he charges Shipra and Pua the lead charge nurse is like the head of labor and delivery, essentially, for the Hebrew babies. He says, I want you to make sure that all the Hebrew babies are killed. I want to wipe these people out. And what you anticipate them doing is obeying Pharaoh, at the, because if they don't, they're likely going to die, but they don't obey Pharaoh. Listen to what they do instead. Verse 17. The midwives 
feared God. They could have been killed at the drop of a dime, or the drop of a hat by Pharaoh. But they feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, it's all, it's all right to laugh when you hear this. Why have you done this and the male children live? The, the midwife said to Pharaoh, get this, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Burn. <laughs> For they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Okay, so that's like a slap in the face and then a dependence on the God who saves. These women feared God. They, it, if I were them, I likely would have feared Pharaoh. I would have said, Pharaoh, if I don't obey him, he's going to kill me without thinking twice about it. But these women, they feared God. They revere him. They trust him so much so that they're willing to obey him even at the cost of their own potential well-being. That begged the question in my life this week, do I fear God so much that I'm willing to obey him even when it's going to cost me something? Do you fear, do you trust, do you revere God and his word and his ways so much so that when you are tempted and prompted to doubt, disobey, or just try to walk away from him, that you will trust in him, that you will obey him and follow him wherever he calls you, to do whatever he asks you to do? Do you fear him so much that you'll give of your time, energy, and resources to support the work of the local church? Do you fear him so much that when you are reviled and, and, and vindic- when you are reviled and spoken poorly against, that you will be gracious and patient, slow to anger, and quick to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Will you fear God so much so that when finances are threatened, you won't say, okay, I'm not giving to the church. I'm not going to give to others who are in need. I'm going to hoard up all that I can for myself. Will you fear God in sexual ethics, following his ways instead of your desires? Will you fear God so much so that when he calls you to leave a place of familiarity and comfort, that you're ready to go to a people, to a place for his purposes? wherever that might be. How did God deal with these women and how did he treat his children? Well, he didn't leave them. He strengthened them. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. God keeps his promises. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Guys, God is not active. God is active. He's not absent. We do not have a silent savior or a distant deity. We have a God who keeps his promises. Even when it looked like death was imminent for his people, this is the God who's moving, even if he's not always explaining. And even against one last-ditch effort from Pharaoh to wipe them all out. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but every daughter, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh says, forget the Hebrews, forget Shipras and Puas. I'm sending my own people in. 
I'm going to have them put all the babies in the Nile. The river along which all society was built also served as their sewer system. Essentially, Pharaoh is saying, flush the babies down the toilet. How evil. How ugly. How dark. Exodus 1 closes, and you think that the only thing that's possible is death. That's it. How is there ever going to be an Exodus 2? And so often in Scripture, so often in following God, we feel this way as well. Between a rock and a hard place, and it seems like there is no end. We're facing the greatest of all fears, death itself. How will God deliver? Well, this is the same God who has the habit of bringing life out of death. Noah in the flood. Israel out of Egypt. Jesus up from the tomb. Guys, the reason we follow and trust the God who keeps his promises is because this is the God who gives his son to live perfectly in our place. To die sacrificially for us, but then also to rise victoriously. The God who keeps his promises is the God who brings life out of death. If ever there is someone to trust amidst delay, amidst difficulty, and the face of every fear, including death itself, it is that God brings new life out of that empty, dark, dead tomb 2,000 years ago. That is the God who keeps his promises. So today, my question for you is this. Will you depend on the God who keeps his promises? Amidst the seasons of delay, amidst your present difficulty, And amidst every fear, including the fear of death itself, will you depend on the God who keeps his promises? And the way I invite you to do this this week, practically, is to confess your doubts, your difficulties to the Lord, and then to store up his word in your heart. What we need is we need to hear verse 7, we need to hear verse 12, we need to hear verse 20 of this passage over and over. We need to hear promises like God will deliver his people from every affliction. The Father of mercies, God of all comfort. Some of the, the Psalm 34, verse 19. Write that down in your journal with, and take it home this week and depend on the God who keeps his promises. So what we're going to do now in concluding our time together, we're going to praise this very God, this God who brings life out of death. We're going to sing praises to his name. We're going to take and eat communion, remembering that his body was broken, his blood poured out for us. And then we're going to pray. We're going to ask that if you have anything that you want prayer for, whether you're in a season of delay, whether you're facing a difficulty, whether you're wrestling with that fear of death and you've yet to place your, your faith in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and saying, I don't know what happens to me after death. Well, Jesus offers new life, eternal life. So if you've yet to come to faith in him or you just want prayer for anything else, come and pray with myself or one of the elders around the room. We'd love to pray for you. Let's turn to him now in prayer and then sing to him in praise. Father, we thank you so much that you have indeed kept your promises not only to your people, Israel, but to all your children in Christ Jesus. That when it seems as though the evil powers of this world would overrun and wipe out your people, that you always find a way to bring life from the shadows of death. And so, Lord, we trust that you keep your promises. You have kept them. You will keep them. And and you are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we thank you for being the God we can trust. 
We ask that you would be near to us in our seasons of doubt and delay. We ask that you'd comfort us in our difficulty. And Lord, we ask that we'd set our hope fully on the revelation to be the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus from the dead, even as we wrestle through the fear beneath every fear, which is death itself. We ask all this to be done in and through your Son's name.